0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're entering the glamorous world of modelling, meeting the supermodels of science. Every other episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary year by exploring some of the top 100 ideas in genetics. This time, we're taking a look at some of the field's top models, the eclectic collection of organisms that have been put to work in labs all over the world to reveal the secrets of biology. Forget your leggy blondes and busty brunettes, your chunky hunks and sexy skinny guys. The undisputed top model in the world of genetics is, in my opinion, tiny fruit fly that you'll find buzzing around overripe bananas in kitchens all over the world. This unassuming insect, known more formally as Drosophila melanogaster, has played a major role in genetics research for more than a century, providing valuable insights into everything from the fundamental principles of development, from a single fertilised egg to a fully formed organism, to human diseases such as cancer and dementia, netting at least five Nobel Prizes along the way. In fact, it's often said that the entire field of modern genetics simply wouldn't be possible without these little critters. But, you may be asking, who on earth stared at the flies buzzing round a fruit bowl and thought, you know what, they look like they'd be good for science? That person was not Thomas Hunt Morgan, the name that most biologists associate with Drosophila. Instead, It was Harvard professor William Ernest Castle, who first used fruit flies in 1901 as a way to speed up his research into coat colour in mice and guinea pigs, fruit flies cranking through a generation in less than a fortnight, much faster than mammals. News of these fast-breeding flies started to spread, and in 1906, an entomologist named Frank Lutz suggested to a colleague that he might find some use for Drosophila, although Lutz himself hadn't had a lot of luck with the Little Flies. And that person was Thomas Hunt Morgan. Born in 1866 in Lexington, Kentucky, Morgan was the great-grandson of Francis Scott Key, composer of the Star-Spangled Banner. Intrigued by nature from an early age, he started off collecting bird eggs and fossils, moving on to marine animals, and eventually landing on fruit flies as a way to explore the concepts of inheritance that were emerging at the time, thanks to the rediscovery of Mendel's laws, sealing his reputation as one of the forefathers of modern genetics. Morgan set up a special laboratory at Columbia University in New York known as the Fly Room. It was Shamahorn Room 613 on the ninth floor of a building that nestles between what's now the art history and biology departments. It was a dingy, cramped space, more like a cupboard than a lab, stocked with bunches of rotting bananas and a group of extremely smart students nicknamed the Fly Boys. Herman Muller, who later won a Nobel Prize for showing that x-rays cause mutations, Alfred Sturtevant, who worked out how to map genes to specific locations in chromosomes, and Calvin Bridges, who was the lab's top inventor, pioneering many of the scientific techniques that turned Drosophila into a powerhouse of genetic research. Oi! And, of course, a big shout-out to Edith Wallace, an artist with an incredible eye for detail who captured many of the lab's research findings with her pen and paper and also did the grim and repetitive job of maintaining all the fly breeding stocks. By 1910, Morgan had spent a year or so breeding regular or wild-type Drosophila, which normally have dark red eyes. But then one day he noticed a male fly with white eyes. Intrigued, he set this little chap to work, breeding with its red-eyed sisters, tracing the pattern of inheritance down the generations, and eventually figuring out that whatever was responsible for the white-eyed fly must be on the X chromosome, one of the fly's two sex chromosomes, leading to the discovery of sex-linked genes. This set the scene for decades of detailed work, spotting strange characteristics in the flies such as extra bristles, curly wings, legs growing out of their faces, and also carrying out multiple generations of breeding experiments, or crosses, to track down the faulty genes to various locations on the insect's four chromosomes. This eventually led to Morgan winning a Nobel Prize in 1933 for his discoveries concerning the role played by the chromosomes in Heredity, sharing the prize money with Alfred Sturtevant and Calvin Bridges. Oi! But not you, Edith. Over the past 100 years, Drosophila melanogaster has played a powerhouse role in research. A quick search of the scientific literature reveals more than 50,000 papers that name-check these fruitful flies. Around 75% of all disease-related genes in humans are thought to have some kind of parallel version in flies, making them an important tool for biomedical research today. They've underpinned major breakthroughs in neuroscience, starting with the discovery of a gene called NOTCH, which helps cells choose their fate. Fruit flies are now being used to model neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and Huntington's diseases. Drosophila also played a key part in revealing the workings of circadian rhythms, the daily cycles of the body clock. Finally, the German-American team of Janni Nusslein-Volhart and Eric Weichhaus won a Nobel Prize in 1995 for finding a cavalcade of genes responsible for correctly building a fruit fly embryo by studying an enormous number of maggots. It's these two that we can thank for popularising weird and wonderful gene names as they named the genes after the effect that mutations have upon the embryos. Initially, many of these were German words, like "knoops," meaning little one, Spitzle, a type of stodgy dumpling, and krippel, meaning cripple. But the fly pushers, as drosophilists are affectionately known, have really picked this up and run with it. Hedgehog, groucho, Kate moss, Swiss cheese, Ken and Barbie, and my personal favourite, mothers against decapentaplegic, which sounds more like a heavy metal band than a gene. Drosophila melanogaster, we salute you. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and online at geneticsunzip.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's the mighty mouse, the main mammalian model organism! Hyperbole aside, mice are arguably the perfect model organism for human biology, putting on their little white fur lab coats to help researchers understand and treat a huge range of human ailments, from common ones like cancer, diabetes and heart disease, to infectious diseases like HIV and malaria, to rare disorders caused by stray faults in single genes. Mice have fascinated men since the dawn of civilization, and there are references in ancient Chinese texts to animals with unusual yellow coats, albinos with white fur and pink eyes, and curious waltzers that bob and weave their heads. By the 1700s, Fancy mice were being kept as pets in places like China and Japan, a fashion taken to the extreme by British Victorians who prized and traded particularly fascinating specimens and founded the gloriously named National Mouse Club in 1895. Geneticists quickly realised that these amateur mouse breeders were doing a fine job at generating interesting patterns of inheritance in their fancy little rodents. And throughout the 20th century, they set to work mapping out the mouse genome, a task that got a lot easier with the use of DNA sequencing through the 1980s and beyond. When the Human Genome Project was launched in 1990, it included the mouse as one of its five central model organisms to be sequenced and studied alongside our own species. In fact, I worked as a summer student next to one of the labs at the Sanger Institute that was busying itself with reading the mouse genome, spooling out reams of A's, C's, T's and G's from huge sequencing machines. The development of genetic engineering techniques, such as the ability to make knockouts lacking specific genes, or transgenic mice carrying colourful markers that light up in different tissues, has transformed our understanding of how genes work to build a body or are involved in disease. And of course, now CRISPR has changed the game again. But I don't want to tell you about the achievements of laboratory mice. I want to tell you the story about the woman behind them. It all starts around 1902, on a farm in the small town of Granby in Massachusetts, owned by one Abby Lathrop. A fan of fancy mice, along with other small animals like ferrets, rabbits, guinea pigs and rats, she realised she could turn her hobby into a hustle by selling mice to scientists in the research institutes of nearby Boston, who were very much getting into this newfangled genetics malarkey. The next official chapter in this story goes to Clarence Cook-Little, who began mating closely related mice together to make inbred strains, and went on to found the Jackson Laboratory, or JAX, probably the premier mouse research facility in the world. Abby is usually demoted to a footnote as the crazy mouse lady, homeschooled for most of her life, forced to leave the profession of teaching due to chronic illness, and a failed poultry farmer by the turn of the 20th century. But actually, she was a smart businesswoman and a self-taught scientist, carefully cataloguing her creatures in a most rigorous manner. In fact, she even published a number of scientific papers about the inheritance of cancer predisposition in mice in collaboration with the eminent pathologist Leo Loeb at the University of Pennsylvania, providing important insights for the newborn field of cancer research. Abby's mouse empire started with just two little squeakers, a male and female waltzer, and eventually grew to more than 10,000 animals, all living in straw-lined boxes, nibbling on oats and crackers. Her first client was William Ernest Castle from Harvard University. Yep, that's the guy from the fruit fly story, who realised that this collection of fancy mice contained a whole repository of genetic variations just waiting to be explored and the scientists just kept coming back for more. Clarence Cook Little founded the Jackson Laboratory using animals from Abbey's farm, and some of those strains are still available to buy today. Yet he only mentions her once in a 1931 scientific paper in which he describes her as a mouse fancier of more than ordinary care and scientific interest. Talk about faint praise. Abbey just couldn't win. The world of science at that time was ruled by men, keeping her and her mice stuck on the farm. And when her business did make it into the media, it was usually framed around how strange it was that a woman should be doing this, given that ladies are so afraid of mice. So with a big up yours to the sexism of the early 20th century, let's hear it for Abby Lathrop and her farmyard laboratory and for the millions of life-saving mice in labs all over the world whose journey originally started in her Massachusetts barn. Schmalwand. Gänsekraut. Thai cress, arabet Rameuse, arabet de dame, woolcress, tailcress, mouseear cress, arabide, Zandraket, Gershemad, Veskriniblom, Lutfu, shiro inu nazuna, and something in Polish that I am not even going to try and pronounce. Those are all names for Arabidopsis thaliana, also known as the weed, the most popular plant in genetics since Mendel's peas. First discovered in the Harz Mountains in northern Germany by 16th-century doctor and botanist Johannes Thal, hence the name Thaliana, Arabidopsis has long been a firm favourite of geneticists who prefer their laboratory subjects to stay still in a pot, rather than squeak, fly or otherwise make a nuisance of themselves. Arabidopsis has been used as a model plant in genetics since the 40s, thanks to German botanist Friedrich Leibach. It's not much to look at, around six inches tall with simple white flowers on long stems emerging from a splat of floppy green leaves, but start to mutate its genes And a world of weirdness emerges, revealing vital insights into the molecular nuts and bolts that lie behind flower budding, colour and shape, leaf formation, responses to daylight hours, temperature and the seasons, drought tolerance, seed formation, disease resistance and much, much more. There are other things that make Arabidopsis a handy lab mate. It only takes six weeks for them to go from germination to producing plenty of mature seeds, making for speedy experiments. And they can be easily genetically modified using a special type of bacteria known as Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Oh yeah, and they're really easy to grow in a very small space, which also helps. Although Arabidopsis isn't any use as an agricultural crop, it is related to foods like radishes and cabbages. But more importantly, it's been a vital tool for understanding the inner genetic workings of flowering plants and how they adapt to a changing world, something we're going to need to know a lot more about in the future. And finally, a big shout out to some of the other models working hard in the genetics business. There's E. coli, the hardest working bacterium of them all, from its first discovery in faeces in 1885 to a starring role in molecular biology. Then there's yeast that reveal the secrets of the biological engine that drives cell division in all complex life. Snapdragons or antirhinums have been used as a model to study how plants shape and colour their petals to attract the attention of pollinators, while the see-through embryos of nippy tropical zebrafish have revealed hidden secrets of vertebrate development. What about C. elegans, a microscopic nematode worm made from exactly 1,031 cells that appear on cue, making it a handy model for studying cell fate in a developing embryo. And the tadpoles of the African claw-toed frog, Xenopus laevis, have also played an important part in shaping our understanding of the very earliest moments of life, as well as being the first animal to be cloned. Rhesus monkeys have been used as models for various human diseases, particularly where it's essential to get as close to a human system as possible, including the development of the polio vaccine. Dogs were used for the discovery and testing of insulin as a treatment for diabetes, which has saved countless human and canine lives, because pets get diabetes too. And of course, there's the guinea pig. It may be an unkind way to refer to people taking part in clinical trials, but guinea pigs were the original guinea pigs for the first tests of diphtheria toxin, ultimately leading to modern immunisation against the disease. Then there are some more unusual models. The merits of ferrets have been useful for clinical researchers, as these are the only other animals that seem to catch both human and bird flu viruses. And armadillos are used as a model organism for studying leprosy, now known as Hansen's disease, because they show the same signs of nerve damage as infected humans. Finally, let's watch out for the new kids on the modelling block – mathematical models. Scientists are increasingly moving from in vivo to in silico research, creating virtual simulations of cells or organisms inside a computer that can provide valuable insights into biology, as well as running tests and trials in the virtual world before venturing out to experiment in the real one. So if you don't fancy fruit flies or frogs, and you're never going to make it on the catwalk, maybe that's the ideal place to start your scientific modeling career. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email us at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, Please do spread the word so more people can discover this show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Production was by Hannah Barrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.